That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 608 with my guest, Kimmy Culp. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the bullshit bouncing around in our skulls. This podcast is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. Um, let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Jack, and he asks, I know that other veterans like myself listen to your podcast, and I wanted to know how many have reached out to you and asked about having difficulty adjusting to life on the outside, and outsides in parentheses or quotes. Um, that's a great question. Um, I've, I've been contacted by a few people, but not as many, honestly, as I... Um, had hoped, and, and by that I don't mean them reaching out to me for advice because I do not feel qualified at all to uh, give anybody, you know, readjusting from war or the military uh, on, on how to live their life other than encouraging them to get help from, you know, whether it's support group or a therapist or EMDR or, you know, any of that stuff that's... I'm just kind of a cheerleader for people and going uh, going in and trying different things because not the same thing works for everybody. But thank you for your question, and I'm always open to um, having guests on to talk about readjusting to life once they uh, leave the military because um, the statistics of ex-military people, returning veterans, uh, etc. Uh, the statistics of them taking their own lives is horrifying. It's horrifying. And I wish that was talked about when uh, our leaders start posturing and talking about how we need to be tough and go to war and, you know, blah, blah, blah. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Little Flea. And uh, describing her schizophrenia. Frenia? Frenia? I can't believe it. 10 years into the podcast, I'm just questioning how I pronounce that. Uh, she writes, sometimes the grass sounds like a bowl of Rice Krispies, and I can't shower because the demon I accidentally manifested with my fear will finally emerge into this dimension. And then a snapshot from her life. One time I unknowingly hallucinated seeing my co-worker's breath, like when it's cold outside, but we were in an 85-degree kitchen. I said, are you chewing ice or something? Why did I just see your breath? Everyone fell silent and looked confused for a few seconds. Then someone yelled, damn, I want to smoke what she's smoking. 
and the whole kitchen laughed. Fuck. I cannot imagine what it is like to live with psychosis. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Bo Stuffins. And about his depression, he writes, My brain competes in an Iron Man every day, wearing a chainmail suit of sadness and confusion. And about his anxiety, it wasn't enough when I had anxiety over what would happen to me daily, so I added the world. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. Thank you for that. This is from the Fear Survey. This is filled out by a young woman who's uh, 17, and uh, she calls herself Rose. And uh, she writes, I'm scared of the fact that I'm probably going to be diagnosed with bipolar 2. I'm terrified my hypomania is going to turn into full-blown mania or worse. I'm scared that if my hypomania becomes worse, I'll end up hurting or even killing myself or worse, hurt or kill someone else. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, my first thought when I read this was, I hope that you, uh, and it sounds like you are uh, possibly under the care of a psychiatrist, and I would strongly urge you um, to to take their advice, um, assuming that it is a good qualified uh, uh, psychiatrist. Um, Because from what I understand, uh, medication can help greatly Uh, with keeping people from having um, manic or depressive episodes when they have have bipolar. This is from the What Has Helped You survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself a morose little elf. And uh, to the answer of the question, um, oh, did I lose the other, the page that I wanted from this one. Oh, what if anything have people said or done that have helped you with your issues? And she writes, I know it's just a small thing, but a co-worker sent me a text this weekend saying that my sense of humor makes his long days at work bearable and that he's so glad he met me. Things like that remind me that I'm so much more than my productivity. When I die one day, I hope people say things like that. I know that no one will be gushing about how many well-written emails I sent to clients. Oh, that is so fucking great. That is so great. Thank you for that. Uh, This is an email that uh, I got from uh, Mrs. Reem uh, Al-Hashami, and she writes, Hello. My name is Mrs. Reem E. Al-Hashami, the Emirates Minister of State and Managing Director of the United Arab Emirates World Expo 2020-2021 Committee. I have a great business proposal to discuss with you if you are interested in foreign investment slash partnership. Please reply with your line of interest. Um, Reem, thank you for this because I... I have some great ideas for last year's expo. Uh, first and foremost, a time machine. Now, the caveat is that I've built it with a leaf blower engine, so I will probably only be able to go back one day at a time. Uh, and as you can gather, if I sleep, I'm just going to be in a groundhog situation. So I'm going to have to go without sleep. So when I do show up at the expo, uh, I'll be the guy with bags under his eyes. The other idea I have for the expo is an invention 
Um, and hear me out on this ream. I know you're busy. It's a baby carriage shaped like a hat. So imagine it's sunny out. You're pushing your kid. You start to get sunburned. You dump the kid. You put on the hat. And it forces the kid to learn how to walk. I also, and I'm almost done patenting this, it's a fountain pen flamethrower. And the idea is that as you kill zombies, you keep a tally. And when a new government forms, you're ready to be a founding father. So I want you to consider those, Reem. I know you get a lot of offers. I know how the Emirates work. Just be open-minded. That's all I ask. Sweet, sweet rain. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, For me, one of the biggest pluses to therapy, and really for me where the rubber kind of hits the road, is gaining tools to solve problems in my life. You know, it's all great to understand where trauma comes from and what issues I have, but if I can't develop tools to learn how to deal with them, it's like, what is what is the point of it? And so it's one of the reasons why I'm a big fan of, uh, of therapy and having a therapist like my therapist, Heidi, who can really get in there and help me break, uh, break things down. So if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, affordable, and entirely online. Get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and switch therapists at any time. And when you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash mental today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash mental. And make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from the podcast. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. And then finally, this is... Uh, from the struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Cheyenne and she deals with uh, psychosis and she gives a snapshot from her life. I once left work and looked at the sky because it was a beautiful day. I looked at one cloud in particular and felt like the cloud was telling me to be careful because they found me. It was not a storm cloud, just a normal cloud. 
I've waited in a grocery store parking lot for an hour, staring at the entrance to make sure no one was coming. I returned home and kept watching windows, our driveway, etc., to make sure no one was there. I honestly thought, quote, they, unquote, were coming to take me away and perhaps torture me. I finally came... I finally came to about five hours later. I'm a very logical person that prides myself on my intelligence and understanding of reality. Having hours at a time that are barely memorable where a particularly unsane thought takes over all my senses and logic is terrifying. I'm still terrified of my own mind. And then uh, a struggle in a sentence that she writes about her psychosis walking through a hall of smoke and mirrors in a horror house while trying to calmly teach a lesson on cartography. Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. I'm a kinky person. I didn't want to be... I'm, I'm ashamed. A sexual being. Deeply ashamed. You are... I want to live fucking depressed. But how? I can't do this anymore. I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable. Is life just a series of perpetual losses? You're not depressed. We're black. There is no real chance for intimacy. We don't do that. Without risking being hurt push it all down you can't go around it Ireland, like we don't do mental health talk through is the only path no one is ever alone there's somebody else out there don't forget experiencing the same thing as you that the places you feel most broken now you just gotta look for them will one day be your greatest strength and when you find them it's a great feeling and i'm suddenly feeling horrible about <laughs> making that joke but that's how far i will go to get a laugh because i am empty inside you're in the right place. I'm here with Kimmy Culp, who is a producer and podcaster, author? Uh, kind of, sort of. Okay. Yeah. Um, the piece that I read that you, that you wrote about hiding your struggles with mental illness for 24 years was a really great article. And refresh my memory, what, what uh, publication? Publication. Um, it ran in the Sunday paper, which is Maria Shriver's That's uh, right. Sunday paper. Yeah. Yep. Um, you worked for a while with the uh, Oprah Winfrey Network. Uh, what was what was that like? I mean, that seems like a good fit for kind of your mission, but uh, you never know uh, when sausage is being made uh, what it's like behind the scenes. Well, you know, that was an interesting chapter, I will say. I worked for both the show and the network. So the the what well, greatest lesson I ever learned in television, which the rule there was before you produced anything, mm-hmm. sort of the the edict and the ethos I learned there, which I'm forever grateful for, was before you pitched any idea about a story or a guest. Um, she or the executive producers would say, what is your intention in telling this story? Which before that, I had worked in newsrooms, I had worked, you know, in film, and nobody had ever had that simple question. You know, which is such you, a great question. Which is, yes. How do you want them to feel? What do you want them, you know, to learn, to mm-hmm. take action? So um, lots of great lessons in growth and storytelling. But it is... Um, 
a bunch of type A women mm-hmm. <laughs> all crawling over each other to get to the top and endless hours and work above all and exhaustion and a really good and a really bad job for somebody with bipolar disorder because that endless energy and sleepless nights can actually be celebrated and rewarded. Yeah. And, um, you know, the crashes uh, are hard to manage when you're living the life of a oh, workaholic. I can't imagine. You know, there there's a saying that there's uh, two kinds of bipolar, the kind that gets you promoted and the kind that gets you fired. <laughs> could not. And, like, more surreal experiences than one could ever fathom. Like, I found myself, like, in hotel rooms with Prince, like, having tea and can you know trying to convince him to do so i look back and it was like a really fun chapter but i also look back and sort of cringe because i think i was pretty unhealthy mm-hmm. during a, a lot of it and i think i was perhaps leaning into some mania too much yeah um and yeah. it's funny because you can't see it at the time i had uh, an experience with, I don't know if it was full-blown mania, I think it was more hypomania, uh, where I was on a, a talk show. And having it public is so, uh, it, it, it just made, it makes me sick to my stomach to even think about it. And you today. watched it. And uh, I watched it, and I thought I was so brilliant and charming at the time, and I look back now, and I'm just like, oh, my God, I want to contact everybody associated with it and apologize. And let's start there in talking about (laughs) mania. Uh, You were diagnosed with bipolar 1 or 2. Well, I was diagnosed, actually, I was sort of rapid cycling, um, when I was 19, um, I'll talk about like the hereditary um, component of it, but um, I was in college, had a, in hindsight, very manic summer, um, and then went on a trip to Africa in which uh, on the way back home, well, first of all, I was emaciated. I like weighed nothing and came back home and um, proceeded to not sleep pretty much for, I think, you know, four or five nights. My um, father had been diagnosed, and this will actually be the first time mentioning that my father has bipolar disorder. He's 82, and he decided last week he's ready to tell people. Wow. Yes. So as a result of the article. Um, So, yeah, so I was, um, came back and, you know, crashed, um, and yeah, was diagnosed. Uh, do you remember any scenarios when you were in this heightened state other than the not sleeping and the not eating? Well, your interactions with people, you know, any grandiosity or, um, feelings of invincibility, uh, you know, the things that are common when people are in mania. Yeah. So I remember, um, you know, Africa is a place that um, I think penetrates the soul regardless of whether you're suffering from a manic episode or not. But that summer, um, I was sleeping very little. I went from not exercising to running like you know, I would run seven, eight miles a day, lost a ton of weight. Um, 
was dating, was going out seven nights a week, a straight A. So it sort of on the surface looked like I was suddenly crushing life. Mm -hmm. But in hindsight, um, my life was moving at lightning speed. And that crash that came back after the international travel, which I now, you know, understand the relationship to sleep and time change and how that can really, mm-hmm. um, you know, you know, prompt what exactly what happened to me. And then, you know, I, I got back and I wasn't sleeping, but I also um, noises were heightened. So it was like a car would go by and I almost couldn't handle it. I mean, I remember going to doctor's office and it was like the fountain. A lot of noises were really overstimulating mm-hmm. to me. Um, certainly didn't socialize or step foot in a party, whereas, you know, eight weeks prior, I was dancing on the table at the party. Um, and, you know, I just felt out of control in my mind and my body. Um, so lots of, you know, crying in the shower for hours, you know, not sleeping. I, I, was the crying ever when you were in mania or would it be when the mania would go away? It would be during the, the, when the mania would go away. Yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't feel safe in my skin um, at all. So, any know, was it any particular thought, or was it just a vague sense of doom? And this was during the low or the high? This was the low. Yeah. Um, and I felt that my mind was out of control. You know, crazy in air quotes, whatever that looks like. I thought that I was going crazy and that I would have to live. Um, it was sort of like the anxiety of being so overstimulated by the world, afraid of the world in a sense. And, um, you know, again, like holding down in my room on my green phone futon in bed crying. And eventually I pulled out of all my classes um, and the, the heightened uh, sensitivity, the you know, feeling annoyed by the sounds of cars passing, that was during the low? Yep. Okay. So that was, I was sort of, I mean, at the time they said I was rapid cycling. So I think I was, you know, hovering up and below and, gotcha. and all of the stimulation was incredibly hard, hard to live with that, that, um, cycling and they were also trying to figure out medications which out of the gate can be you know pretty complicated um so yeah i mean i was very very fortunate to have parents that took it seriously um because my dad had been diagnosed two years prior um and so it made a lot of sense when I had the symptoms I was exhibiting and I had the family history. And it's really a generational story. I mean, the mental health stuff goes, you know, there's stories of aunts who put their heads in ovens. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uncle. After they wrote a bestselling yeah, novel. After they wrote. You know, and and my, climbed Mount Everest and in climbed, sandals. And climbed under my uncle committed suicide. And, um, and my, you know, the backdrop of my childhood with my father, who's maybe my favorite person in the world, um, was a man who lived with very extreme polarities his entire life. Now, you not understanding where that was coming from as a kid, how did that affect you? Do you remember what you thought or felt uh, when his behavior, I'm assuming, would become erratic? Yeah. So I think my mom did 
a pretty good job of protecting us. Um, but it caused, um, yeah, some, <laughs> some pain and disruption in our family. And, you know, what I remember is, um, you know, he was a serial entrepreneur, incredibly bright, um, full of ideas, constantly taking risks, changing plans all the time. And then it was if there was this retreat into a black hole that didn't make any sense for the dynamic on the go working, you know, nonstop working dad that I knew. Um, and yeah, so I think that's confusing. I mean, I had um, two parents at home who loved me very much, but my father was, you know, mentally ill and had no idea. Um, it breaks my heart to think that um, clearly knew that um, there was something wrong, but had no words, mm -hmm. no understanding, no possibility for treatment because there was no name to it would his uh drive disappear when he would hit his lows or was he still did he work through it he would work through it um that's so hard yeah yeah and so yes he would he would work through it but you know even watching him as um you know re retired once he was diagnosed, you know, in his early 50s and treated and on meds, then the veil was lifted and I could see the depressive episodes. I almost want to cry thinking about it because I can't imagine what it was like before medication. And the fact that my mom had to work to cover it and he had to live in that with no clarity, right? Um, like, at least I had, I mean... I, I think clearly there was a lot of things in my life earlier that were red flags, but, um, you know, at least I had something to work with, right? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that really fucking blows about untreated mental illness is the blame and the shame yeah. and, and how we um, just assume it's some character flaw and mm -hmm. us not understanding that it's something bigger than ourselves and that we can't fight or think our way out of it for those of us that need medication. Yeah. And it was interesting. I had a conversation with him. We're incredibly close, probably because we have a lot of the same uh, ways of being. Um, and he said, you know, I have very few regrets as an 82 year old man, man. Um, but probably my biggest is the impact that my illness you know, had over the years on, you know, family and relationships. And, uh, you know, my answer to that was, you know, people have much longer list of regrets. So go yeah. freaking easy on yourself. Um, but I do think that there is this, this idea, right, of separating yourself from who is the character of a person and what are the symptoms manifesting of the illness because yeah. they are often not remotely aligned. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up because there can be um a feeling that somebody even though you don't understand that they've been diagnosed with with something, there's a feeling that they're not themselves. Yeah. And so you still can feel loved 
by that person, but it's almost like they're being held hostage by something greater than themselves that yeah. even if it's on a subconscious level, you understand it and you forgive them probably a lot more than they forgive themselves. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I saw that. Um, yeah, I've seen that many times in my life and my parents' um, marriage. And like you said, like watching yourself on that show um i don't know that i've had anything that's like visually i can watch on a screen but i'm a visual person Mm -hmm. and i've had periods or episodes where i'm just so embarrassed yeah and ashamed yeah any that you can recall that you're comfortable talking about yeah i mean i think i had a very I, I did lots of creative projects and working in entertainment, and I think I was rewarded for this sort of otherworldly confidence and big ideas. And um, but all of that travel and mania, I would self-medicate the hell out of it because something had to slow it down. Yeah. Um, so I think I'm almost embarrassed i like i can see myself like with the rapid speech and this idea and this idea and this idea and then going to the event that night and you know drinking five glasses of wine because i just want to shut my head up and then waking up and being ashamed and downing the coffee and being back at the and just like looking at that person from a distance probably much more so now that i think i'm older and more evolved but like man that is not my best self did anybody ever say anything um or give you a look you know i think you know i i it's so funny because i was listening to your podcast and i often think like this narrative we all have of like not enough i'm like is my bipolar enough or too much (laughs) is it it enough of like a Um, Do I qualify? Do I, like, how crazy am I? Like, Am I trying to force my way into the clubhouse? Am I, like, am I enough of, um, so I think part of why now speaking out and being open is I think I pulled off on the outward, you know, having the facade of a relatively stable, normal way of being. Now, under a microscope, under the people who know me, there is definitely red flag. Like my mom will be the one who'd say, you're you're talking really fast. Or I think you were a little manic, right? So she's married to a man who has bipolar and mm-hmm. she's been dealing with it for a long time and I'm her daughter. So she probably like family, but in like true family fashion, no one really likes to tell you while you're in it. Like it's three months or three weeks later and she'll be like, well, you know, I noticed you were a little manic. Right. (laughs) And it's really hard for the person to see themselves objectively, even if five people close to them say, you seem like you're talking fast and you're not sleeping and you're going a hundred miles an hour and you're not really listening. Yeah. It's, um, it's frustrating for the, for those people around them. I had some weird shit happen. Like I was, uh, 
working in LA. It was, as you mentioned, I, I la- uh, worked for the launch of Oprah's Network, and I had a meeting, supposedly, um, with a production company. Knew we were working with the production company, knew the two directors, but I got an email that the breakfast was amazing. You know, my ideas were so great they couldn't, and I had no recollection of it. And this wasn't like, I mean, this was like a daytime meeting. It's not like I was, you know, out at night doing crazy things and drinking too much and didn't remember. Um, and I don't know if it was like, I remember being really manic. I think I was like swapping around meds, but I almost felt like that was like, um, I moved so quick, it was almost like there was no even presence. Like, my head was into the next, like, lapses in memory, big lapses in memory. And, like, that is, like, freaking freaky to to have somebody say, that was great, your ideas, and you're like, I don't even... Because you were going so fast, you couldn't even be present in the moment you were thinking of what your but next thought and idea... my brain didn't even... I had no recollection like right and you know it could have been medication i think i was going for a hundred percent like in a manic phase at that time um but it's almost like i feel there were many stretches where like my mind was like running a, a marathon and it's like but somewhere my soul wanted to rest and you know i would Definitely there were stretches. Um, God, this was about seven or eight years ago. I was working on a project, and I would wake up in the middle of the night, and I would write all these ideas. And, I mean, they were pretty good ideas. But I would look at it, like, later, my notebook, and whatever vision I have of a crazy person writing is what, like, I was embarrassed. Like, so many ideas scribbled everywhere, everywhere. I mean, it looked like if somebody in my mind was mad, that would be the visual representation. So I think these big bursts of Mm -hmm. energy, ideas. Talk show on the moon. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, you know, why can't I just be a girl with pretty handwriting? (laughs) You know? You know, I walked away from television because it often did not feel aligned. <laughs> I was I just wasn't telling the types of stories that I believed mattered. Um, and so, you know, I ended up making a documentary film about one of my friends, which uh, was a story, a love story about a husband and wife. Um, and the husband has ALS and they happen to be really close friends and having their first child. Um, and so first of all, now that I've realized between the podcast and the film, I am drawn to stories of suffering. Um, but where my sharing comes into that is I had started my podcast, All the Wiser, and the really the premise of the show was that people would have these very open and honest and raw conversations about going through really difficult things. Yeah, you've had some great guest sounds with really dramatic stories. Uh, there's currently a re-airing of your interview with Sue Klebold, who is the mother of one of the Columbine shooters. And Correct. highly recommend people listen to that. Um, and sorry, I'm going down a little sidebar here, but um, 
I heard her speak once and I thought, man, I had totally judged this woman. I just assumed that she was a compassionless Stepford wife who was probably just greedy and, you know, a social climber and ignored her kids. And that's why they did what they did. And she was this compassionate, articulate, sensitive woman. Uh, who was not allowed to grieve. I mean, there wasn't a lot of tolerance. And for everybody her, cut her, for her out of their lives. To mourn or grieve her loss, which, yeah. was, which was real. So Sue's a great example. I'm asking Sue to have a very difficult conversation and show up in a way um, that is emotionally very brave. So I was, you know, doing these conversations and I realized sort of, you know, I'm not hypocrisy is maybe a um, (laughs) dramatic word, but like, wait a second, like, I am not willing to stand in my hard truth. I am not willing to be fully open and honest about my pain, my suffering, my story, my dark corners. Um, That doesn't seem right based on the path and the work and that I have chosen, mm-hmm. which is truth telling, right? Um, and having big, brave conversation about hard things. And so, you know, it was my producer who challenged me. Um, I had opened up to her, which I had opened up to very few people. And it was, you know, we had lunch and she started really digging at the why, like, you know, why these types of stories, why suffering. Because um, it's got- cheaper than therapy, <laughs> and I don't have to risk anything. <laughs> and so I decided to share it, the the, the very thing I had um, carefully hidden. Um, and my, um, yeah, and my external life, I was like, uh, you know, L.A. mom, three kids, husband, you know, house, the whole thing. Um, and a, you know, social group and professionally were saying, you know, I have this mental illness with a big stigma attached. There was certainly a, what I felt like was a high risk associated with that truth. And so do you remember, um, what did the steps look like in coming forward? Who knew before you had the reveal on your podcast? So there were some close friends over the years who had, um, I had shared with um, primarily virtue of proximity in my life during an episode, um, like in, during my first episode, my roommate, because, you know, when you stopped going to classes and showering and, you know, functioning and your parents come and you're away and you share with your roommate what's going on. Um And, you know, over the years, there was very very few people that I had opened up to, including um, my in-laws, who I'm incredibly close to. Um, but, you know, they're they're from the South, and I had preconceived stories about, you know, how open you can be around mental health with... Um, <laughs> I don't know that that's fair, but in, that was what was in my head. So, um, yeah, many family members didn't know, and, you know, 90... Eight percent of my social and professional network did not know. It was a very, very select group of people and a very small group of people. And so, talk about that reveal. Um, so and, I. And what were the fears? Uh, 
Oh. If there were specific she's, ones. She's um, unpredictable. She's unreliable, um, unlovable. I mean, a lot of stories I had told myself. Um, that they will think this once once I share that this is what I, I have? I think those are the stories in my head. I mean, you keep something in the dark for 24 years because you're deeply ashamed of it, but also because you can't control how other people will conceive it. Um, so for somebody who grips like this at controlling things, because I think I feel out of control often in my mind, um, putting it out there with no control over the person who may never listen to the episode and just say, did you hear? She's I'm great. not hiring her. Not hiring her. Or um, so that fear of I have no idea how people will experience this, how they will judge me, how they will pull away, how, you know, sort of, um, yeah, it felt really, really raw. Was there a fear that people were going to say, she's making too big of a deal uh, with this? She's just uh, selfish and dramatic and she's blaming it on this. Yes, yes. And I think, to be honest, that's probably what some people think. I think especially because I um, feel both, you know, two things can exist and be true. And um, there are so many pieces of my life that are whole and meaningful and beautiful. Um, And I externally have always, I think, had a a pretty blessed life and facade. Mm -hmm. But the disparity during many stretches between the internal and the external could not be more and the internal more uh, far apart far apart i mean so far apart my external world and my internal world were shouldn't even be in the same room shouldn't be in the same house (laughs) same block and and so i would focus on keeping the external going right make sure that's looking good Mm -hmm. to protect yourself um so yes i mean i had all of those fears. Like I said, like, is my story enough? Is um, is my story too much? Is my story too much? Right. Like, um, all of these fears. Um, but I asked a friend who was a journalist. I knew she would ask smart questions. I also knew it was a safe space mm. and that she loved me and trusted me and she would challenge me. Um, but I was safe in the conversation. Mm-hmm. So... Um, you know, Brene Brown always says, you know, you share with the people who've earned the right and, you know, um, your your most vulnerable pieces. And so I knew having that conversation that that was just a really uh, smart space to have it for many reasons. So, yeah. And then I aired it. And this was three years ago? Uh, yeah. Well, what year is it? 2000? Uh Yes, three years ago. I recorded it three years ago, um, pretty much exactly, and it aired in July. So Mm -hmm. we're coming up on three years ago when it aired. And what do you remember? Being totally fucking terrified um, and just feeling um, like... like naked. I, I was just going to say exposed is is the the word that you know. And like oh. maybe a lot of ego, assuming that everybody had listened. Like you know what I mean. It was like ninety minutes later. I'm like, oh my god, everybody knows I can't go to the grocery store. Um, so like you know, 
now I realize like many people didn't listen and there were people, but I, um, the, I was terrified. And then the reaction, um, was so loving and kind and really interesting people that I perceived to, I just didn't really have a shared energy or space when I saw them. And it was as if like they were drawn to me, like it was the opposite. Like I thought people would be repelled and it was if like I was on a walk and people would, and even the people who didn't say anything, like I felt it. People are like, you know, and I don't know if, if my facade made me not approachable or relatable or if it was their own suffering and they saw me as, as, um, you know, they saw themselves in me or my story. And many people, you know, said, you know, my mom, I grew up with a bipolar mom, um, or, and then, you know, as time went on, I ended up having lots of basically moms call me with daughters having, you know, their onset. And I would talk to them. And then I would talk to the daughters, you know, who went on. I mean, luckily, I social media, you know, like several of the girls I've talked to have gone and done things and published it and are devastated. You know, these manic episodes that have been documented and shared with thousands of their peers. Um, so that's where it shifted into like, okay, so you actually get to be of service and helpful you know, if you're willing to risk the criticism of whether mm-hmm. you're enough or whether you're crazy or. And, and f- for me, that's where the richness of life really begins. Yeah. Is in that. Yeah. It, it's uh, talk about that because I know, you know, <laughs> what I'm saying. I'm saying it very inarticulately, but um Talk about how you discovered uh, a meaning and a purpose and a connection in your life, as you say in that article that I read. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, the, you know, I can talk about the what feels altruistic in that. I mean, it kind of makes you think of like, I thought some of the people who reached out to me, some of the people that I've now had really just real freaking conversations are the same people I had been to countless dinners and we talked about, I don't know, weather, politics, you know, just surface level shit. And it's like, had I known about their suffering, like what could have happened in that moment, right? Like Mm -hmm. what sort of um, is very hard to heal in dark isolation. It is in connection and community where that happens. Mm -hmm. So I went from somebody being at the dinner party and potentially being in a depressive or manic or ashamed or, you know, whatever thing had just happened related to my mental illness and faking it, right? Mm -hmm. And I was alone and maybe the person suffering next to me felt just as alone. And so that's the wall you break down. And so, yes, you get to be of service, but it's also insanely healing and freeing for me. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not just a selfless act. Um, It has, um, 
I am a more, um, the load is so much lighter. So much lighter. I feel um, that I'm a truthful, honest, brave person. And I, I think for many years, I felt a piece of me felt really small. Um, and I was asking people of big things, you know. Talk about the night when your daughter asked you. Oh, yes. So, um, you know, I reached out. This is after the podcast. The podcast airs. I tell everyone, including my ex-boyfriend, who was, I do have to give a shout out to my husband, who when I told him, you asked about my husband, I was terrified. I told him early on in our relationship, and I was convinced that he, uh, my cute you know, Southern boyfriend with the shaggy hair that I met traveling was not going to be into. And you've got to think, this was a long time ago. I mean, saying you had at the time, I think it was even saying, you know, manic, manic depression, depression was like not going to bode well. And so I told him on a, a creek, and then I'll get to your question. And we're sitting there, and I was terrified, and I was crying, and I said, there's something I need to tell you. And so he had this really long pause. And then he's like, really? You're way less crazy than my last girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> he's very funny. Um, but then it was just, he put his arm around me and said, like, I love you and whatever that means. Like, you know, I'm here for it. But to my daughter. What did that feel like? Um, I mean, I got really freaking lucky to, um, at such a young age and such a... Um, to just meet a good man, you know, who's loved me for a very long time and who has seen um, every version of me. And to have a partner that you know isn't going to weaponize your illness yeah. against you is huge. And, you know, when I hear of people whose partners weaponize yeah. uh, their illness against them, I I just want to say, get out. Get yeah. Get the fuck out. Get out. You shouldn't yes. even have that person as an acquaintance, yes. let alone a yeah. partner. Yeah. Um. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's um. Obviously, I know that um. You know. That it's not always easy, but but his um. Yeah, the way he loves me is yeah. is um is a real gift. And, and the other thing that, that that I have to say, too, is this is assuming that the person with the illness is taking responsibility for their recovery, mm-hmm. um, that they're doing what they can. They're taking their meds. They're seeing a psychiatrist. They're you know seeing a therapist. They're getting support. They're reaching out. They're not pulling back and just blaming everything. Uh, on the on the illness, and obviously there's a gray line in there. Where does one end? Where where does the other one begin? I don't I don't certainly have an an answer for that. But I I think as I think the partner has a sense yes. of whether or not that person is consistently taking responsibility. And I have, um, you know, I'd like to say I've always been responsible. I've always been diligent, you know, with medication and with therapy. But again, there was times where my lifestyle and my behavior was not taken care of or being cognizant of the impact um, 
you know, of, of the illness. But I, I want to answer your question about my daughter mm-hmm. because um, so before I did the interview, I um, called a child therapist and said, kids, you know, my kids are growing up quickly and they're going to have this thing called the internet and phones in their hands. You know, so I was, there were certain things that I had to be pretty conscientious of, of a mom as a mom. Um, but I did this interview where I, you know, kind of laid it all out there. So my daughter and I were on a trip and we're going to bed and she says, in the dark, this little quiet voice, mom, what's bipolar disorder? And I'm like, fuck. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, um, honey, that's a great question. You know, I'd love, I'd love to give you a good, and I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Yet again, there's no manual for parenting. What the hell am I going to say? Luckily, I had the podcast with the story. Again, I'm thinking like, oh, shit, what did I say in there? Did I mess something up? So we were driving back. We were in Lemoore, California, driving to LA. We stopped it in and out. I turned it on and it was complete silence. She's like her mother, very emotional to the world, everything she feels deeply. So she cried and she laughed. And then at the end, she said, Mom, you know, when Holly asked you if you would take it away with a magic wand and you said no, I was really surprised. And then she said, I'm really glad you didn't because I think it's your superpower. And um, I, you know, what I what I said in the article is that, um, like, I I only for so long when I was hiding it, looked at the shame and the negativity. Um, And I didn't look at, and I guess you have to be careful saying this, the many gifts that Mm -hmm. um, the brain I was given have gifted me. Um, I know it's cliche to talk about the creativity and the art, but I do believe many of the things I created in this world very much are from the unique chemistry of my brain. And that's true of everyone. I also have come to believe that have incredible empathy. I feel things deeply. And I think that provides me the opportunity to be a mother who allows her kids to feel things deeply and is empathetic. And so, I mean, I didn't get that all in that moment, but you know, your, your 10 year old, yes, the, I mean, she just wasn't looking like, oh, you, like, dirty, flawed, confusing, unpredictable woman. Um, you know, she she almost just celebrated kind of, you know, all of it. Um, and, and what a great example of modeling vulnerability for your kid. Yeah. And and not being a, a know-it-all yeah. about it to... to you know, the fact that you, you said, can we talk about it tomorrow while you thought about what what it is I'm going to say? Yeah. Um, you know, I think one of the best things, I'm not a parent, but I think one of the best things that parents can model for their kid is that they don't immediately have all the answers. And it's yeah. okay to be reflective yeah. and to say, you know, uh, I was wrong or I'm not sure or just to be human and, and you know, own, own that yeah. And I, um, you know, I used to hide so many things, including 
you know, all the medications that I take. And now I have the very opposite approach in the house. You know, I have a teenage son and I almost take pride when I'm taking the medication in front of my kids. And, uh, you know, I just, there's no shame in it. There's no secrecy around it. Mom has bipolar disorder. Um, shout out to my dad who's now public. They know their grandfather has it. Um, they know I take medication for the health of my brain. And I don't know what holds in their future um, or what their future holds, I guess. Um, but I sure as hell hope that when it's the hard thing or the shameful thing, that they're not living in that dark corner, mm-hmm. hiding whatever is hurting them and whatever they need to help them, you know? So we'll see. (laughs) Well, Kimmy, thank you for, for coming on the podcast. Um, your podcast is called, uh, uh, all the wiser, all the wiser. Um, people can find you on social media at, yeah. So we are on, uh, uh, you can follow me personally at Kimmy Culp and then... That's um, K-I-M-I-C-U-L-P. Yes, not to be confused with cult. And then C-U-L-P. And then uh, on Instagram, we're at All the Wiser Podcast. And uh, we have a lot of fun there as well. Thank you so much, Kimmy. Okay. Be sure to check out uh, her podcast. It's called All the Wiser. Um, if you are interested in supporting this podcast, either financially or non-financially, you can do it financially because we can always use uh, your help, whether it's a one-time donation through uh, PayPal or a monthly recurring donation through PayPal. Um, I actually recommend if you're going to do a monthly recurring donation to do it through Patreon because uh, we occasionally release bonus content. For instance, we just uh, released video of the uh, interview I did with Mary Mack uh, live in Minneapolis from a couple of months ago. Um, So consider those. You can also... um, Support us non-financially. Go to iTunes, write something nice, give us a rating, fill out a survey. You know, as I've said before, you know, a good survey from the awful moments or the love survey or the happy moments is like a little Christmas gift to me because um, we certainly <laughs> we have no shortage of dark surveys on the podcast and the light stuff uh, I think is really important because... Um, I think it helps balance out the podcast, and personally for me, I just plain old enjoy reading those. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, let's dive into some, let's dive into some darkness. 
This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Covert. He's in his 50s, um, identifies as uh, other. Uh, He writes, I've always presented as straight, but I'm not really sure. He says that he was uh, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. He writes, listening to you talk about covert incest really rang a bell for me. I've been in EMDR therapy for about a year now for PTSD-like symptoms. I've long felt there was some major family secrets that I was hiding from myself. My mom, early on, used me as a confidant. My first memory of self-pleasure is in my parents' bathroom. As an older teen, after my parents separated, I would often masturbate in the bathroom as soon as I got to her house for visits. I didn't live with her. This is some of what I've figured out. Uh, I think I've just touched on it myself. Um, Ever been physically or emotionally abused? Not sure. I'm pretty sure my mother beat me when I was a baby. I still feel very tentative around women, especially smaller women like my mother, like I'm going to snap and respond inappropriately. Last year at work, I came close to an aggressive overreaction with a co-worker who reminded me of my mother. That prompted the new round of therapy. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Lots of positive experiences made it hard to finally break the bond with my mother. About 10 years ago, I finally gave up on being the, quote, good son, unquote, and broke contact with her. Even when I didn't know why, I knew I had a toxic relationship with her. Darkest thoughts, dirty thoughts about kids. Darkest secrets, physically hurting people who couldn't fight back. Um... Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. First time experiences and incest right now. Uh, How does writing that make you feel? Feels icky. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Why, mom? Question mark. What, if anything, do you wish for? The feeling of safety, to really open up to people. Have you shared these things with others? I'm starting to with my therapist. How do you feel after writing these things down? A little better. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Seek help. Amen. Amen. And I think you would make, because you sound like a really um, self-aware, sensitive dude, and I think you would be a great addition to a support group. Not only would you help yourself, but I think you could be of help to people as well. Thank you for that. This is from the back in time slash in the moment survey filled out by Gia. And uh, I'm just going to read part of this. Pick a positive moment in your day. Use all your senses. What did you see, feel, smell, and think? And she writes, "Um, positive moment of my day was my 4.30 a.m. run this morning in the rain. I was in my zone, and for the first few seconds, I felt the winter air. I inhaled deeper than any other breath I would take that day. I could smell the fresh rain on the pavement. The darkness hugged me as I went along my way. It rained and I felt all the drops hitting my skin one by one. I looked up and saw the darkness I love. The clouds not giving way to daylight just yet. I was thinking of nothing but my breathing. I feel powerful. I feel like me. I feel free. I see sunrise and feel it all stripped away bit by bit. Then I see a car or a person and suddenly I feel angry. They are up also. This is my time. I ignore them. I run in the dark 
only as my abuse only as my abuse only ever happened in daylight. I am unable to run in daylight as I fear being seen. I fear more during the day than I do during the night. PTSD is a bitch. I felt peace on my run. Wow. That is poetic. Thank you for that, Gia. That's one of the things that I think people who've never experienced trauma don't realize is they, they think that the the bulk of the suffering is solely in the event that happened. And I think that's why a lot of ignorant people are like, well, you just need to move on because that's over. And they don't realize that the survivor is dealing with all kinds of things that bring it back up. And that is, you know, it's the ripples, not the not the splash that are the things that, that, that feel so overwhelming, especially when we, when we don't even know it's related to the trauma. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, happily miserable. Uh, she identifies as straight. She's in her 30s, says that she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I remember my dad giving me a bath when I was much too old. He then rubbed Vaseline all over my privates afterwards. He wasn't an involved caretaker, so this was extremely unusual. My mother and brother deny this was even possible. I remember it completely. Yeah, that uh, that sounds clearly like sexual abuse. And fuck your mother and your brother. They weren't in the room. Uh, she's been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, darkest thoughts. I think about cheating on my husband all the time. The desire is constant, but I know I would never actually go through with it. Darkest secrets. My dad was a complete asshole and drug addict on top of being a sociopath. He left when I was 12 and I didn't even care. My mom and I did okay on our own after that until she decided to get married and move out of state when I was still in high school. I wasn't even offered to go with her. I got my GED on what would have been my first day of my senior year. I worked 60 hours a week and lived with a much older abusive boyfriend out of no other option. It's been nearly 14 years and I'm a healthy, happy woman now, married very happily and a mother to an amazing little boy. Our home is happy and safe as well as the family my husband and I have created for ourselves. Yet every single day, this dark cloud of abandonment overshadows my happiness. My husband is a saint, but I don't have the ability to trust him. Our marriage will never be what it should because I bring this fucked up negativity to it. I don't know what a healthy marriage or family looks like, so I make it up as I go. I deal with constant anxiety and depression, but I'm mostly able to cope. Then, out of nowhere, I'm a complete mess of a human, can't even function. I don't want any relationships outside of my husband and son. I don't want to be close to family members or meet new friends. I put walls up and don't know if they'll ever come down. Despite being in a happy, healthy, and fulfilling marriage, I have a constant void in my soul that I know was out there by my fucked up daddy issues. Uh, I hate that term, daddy issues, but it's the most real term I've ever heard. It's a permanent and painful stamp that men have the power to put on their little girls. They have the power to cause the pain and leave a scar and just walk away. It's so unfair. 
I'm constantly seeking a way to fill this painful void and usually find it in senseless flirtation and inappropriate connections with men online. I never flirt in person. I've never cheated on my husband, but that seems to be the only way that I feel complete. I need to be wanted and desired. I need to have what I shouldn't have. I need to feel powerful and in control. If I don't, I feel entirely worthless. I hate myself for that, and at the same time, I don't give a fuck because I'll never be a good person because half of my DNA came from straight evil. I'm going to call I'm going to call some bullshit on that last sentence. Um that that is a self-defeating belief that because you have your dad's DNA that you're never going to be a good person. And it can also be an excuse for you to not do the work that you owe to yourself and your family to process your trauma and give being the woman you want to be the best chance possible. And the other thing I want to say is you say that you're not cheating on your husband, but engaging in, as you call it, senseless flirtation and inappropriate connections with men online. You know, for me, the standard of cheating is would you do it in front of your partner? And if you wouldn't, that to me is being unfaithful. And to some people, they may be like, well, fuck you. That's that's way too hard. You know, that's way too strict. You're not, um, you know, being realistic, et cetera, et cetera. But I want you to at least, if you're listening, to consider that being the, the, the standard for to aim for. Um, and, and if you can't get there, isn't it time to seek help or more help for it and, and process that stuff? Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I always fantasize about having a lesbian experience. When I was 12, a friend and I tried to, quote, have sex, unquote, despite... Uh, knowing anything about real sex and nothing came of it. I never had a lesbian experience once I was old enough and regret not having that experience. Maybe I would have been a lesbian or bisexual. It seems to turn me on the most. I feel embarrassed to admit that. I've only ever been straight and am married to a man. If he knew I had fantasies about being with a woman, everything would change. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my dad that he placed an emotional and mental handicap on my life from the day I was born. I wish he left sooner so I had no memories of him at all. I wish that the void of him leaving was vague and not painful because there was no memory of him. I wish I could at least have a vision of who my dad could have been instead of knowing what a horrible person he was. I tell him he should feel guilty and apologize to me, not just go on with his life like I've never existed. Uh, I tell him nothing he could say or so would ever give me peace or comfort, and then I love will never forget. I think there's some typos in this. I wouldn't even feel bad about it. That would leave him with one one-hundredth of the sadness he gave me. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? I wish that I could reach the point of being able to trust people, again, mostly my husband. I wish I could overcome the pain and mental struggle that my dad left me with. I wish I could be as strong, confident, and loved as women who have good dads in their life. I think that is doable, even if you didn't have a good dad in your life. I really, really do. It takes a shitload of work. 
And sometimes it's really fucking uncomfortable. Um, but I think it's doable. I really do. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared this in therapy many times. Therapists always say, you poor thing. Like, I don't know how much my childhood sucked. One therapist had me say all those things to a chair as if my dad was sitting there. When I finished, I looked up and saw she was sobbing. That's when I realized how bad it really was. How do you feel after writing these things down? Better. It feels empowering to acknowledge the pain and to see it written down. I know it's not my fault, but sometimes I need to see my own thoughts in writing to remember that. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Any women who have been abandoned by a parent should come to terms with how that affects their current life. I think a lot of adults bury the pain and brush off the ways that it influences their adult life. It's powerful, but the more you understand it, the more power you have, at least in theory. And not only the more you understand it, but the more you put in the work to heal that stuff because just understanding something is the beginning of healing, but not the beginning and ending of healing. This is a, an excerpt from the Back in Time uh, in the Moment survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Crunchy Brain. And uh, pick a positive moment in your day. And she writes, this morning I was rummaging through the dryer of clothes that should have been folded days ago. And I was looking for socks, which I never found, by the way. And my four-year-old son came up to me and rested his head against me and made noises like a newborn puppy while rubbing his little nose on my shoulder. His hair smelled like lavender from his bath last night, and the clothes still smelled freshly cleaned. I just stopped for a moment through all the chaos of getting him ready for school and getting myself ready for work, and it was truly wonderful to just feel that moment. Oh, man. Oh, man. Fuck. That is like what I aspire the podcast to be condensed into a single paragraph. That is so beautiful. That is so beautiful, and I can't imagine what that must feel like to be him in that moment, to just be completely vulnerable and to feel so safe. And uh, just a high fucking five to you for for being able to be present for your for your kid like that and give him that. That is that is really beautiful. Uh. This is also from the from the same survey, and this is filled out by a person who calls themselves. It gets better. It gets better. I swear. And uh, pick a positive moment in your day. And they write: Four raccoons walked up my driveway this morning. They were slowly making their way to the road, picking up seeds that had dropped from my bird feeders, turning the seeds over and over again with their childlike hands, eating it with gusto. Uh, even with a window between me and them, I could feel the softness of their fur, smell the leaf mold and fresh air they were stirring up as they walked. I could imagine the grip of their tiny hands on my fingers. When they finally were out of sight, I thanked my higher power that I'd been gifted such a sight. I wrote about it in my journal so I could recall it later when I needed some mild magic in my life. Oh, that's so fucking beautiful. I just live for those those little sublime moments 
you know, I think we all kind of gun for the moment that's, you know, huge, you know, the, the winning the lottery moment or, you know, finding the, quote, perfect, unquote, partner or getting the ideal job. But to me, the really doable life, um, not that those other things aren't doable, but the the thing that I think we have power over in a in a daily capacity is to just fucking let our brain go for a second and look around and just soak it in. This is from the love survey filled out by Jessica, and she writes, I love so many things about the morning. I love the ambient sounds of breakfast being made. I love the smell of coffee and toast. I love the sound of the breakfast dishes being quickly washed and put away. I love the sounds of the world waking up collectively. I love seeing a stranger's sleepy morning face, a bit ugly and cute and intimate, kind of like an O face. I think one of the reasons I enjoy the morning sensory experience is because I spent so much of my 20s, and let's face it, 30s too, hungover while the peaceful morning soundscape turned cacophonous and taunted me as I tried to squeeze more sleep out of my dopamine-deprived brain to minimize the pain of the next day. Then the morning sounds always made me feel like even more of a piece of shit, like the rest of the world was just carrying on in a healthy and normal way while I was isolated in hungover pain and shame. Now that I'm waking up early and refreshed when I hear those sounds, especially from my own kitchen, I feel a deep sense of satisfaction and relief that I'm part of the collective morning too. Oh, is that great? And boy, do I know that feeling of the world's productivity mocking me. Holy fuck. That's so good. This is from the fear survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Clouds for Brains. He writes, I fear that marrying my wife was a mistake, not because she's a bad person or abusive to me in any way, but because I constantly think about what it would be like to not be in this relationship anymore and be severed from all the additional responsibilities that come with it. She has two wonderful boys from her previous marriage who I've come to love and adore as my own and who have come to adopt me as a bonus dad. I know I'm very special to them as they are to me, and the thought of breaking their little hearts and never seeing them again makes me nauseous. However, there are times where I fantasize about my life before I met my wife and those beautiful boys. A time where I was lonely, unhealthy due to not taking my meds for a prolonged period of time, severely depressed and even having suicidal thoughts on a daily basis. But the one thing I did have back then was free time. Every day I wasn't at work, I was free to do whatever I want. Whether that be sitting at my desk in my basement where I kept my computer or hanging out with friends. Honestly, most of the time I was just in my basement playing computer games and dissociating with the pain and depression I felt daily. Why do I miss that? I've thought about talking to my wife about taking more time to myself, but I feel guilty, selfish, and like a bad father and husband for wanting that. I'm a very introverted person and being around people is exhausting and my job involves being surrounded by and interacting with the public all day. I feel like shit for not feeling recharged by just coming home to my family, but I don't. 
I cherish the maybe 30 minutes I get sometimes to turn on my computer and try to immerse myself into a game before I'm needed or have to get ready for work. It's getting to the point where I look forward to the next time I get alone time more than I look forward to coming home to my family, and that is an awful, scary, gross feeling. Thank you so much for that. That is so honest and human, and I think a lot of people relate to that. Um, And I think that the question, one of the questions is, are you worthy of requesting more alone time? Is that doable? Is that a reasonable baseline need for a partner? And I think it is. I think it is. Um, I don't know if, if couples counseling would be a good thing, or maybe you start with a, a conversation with your, with your wife, but calling yourself guilty and selfish for wanting more than a half hour to yourself, um, that's just mean. That's just mean. But thank you for, for filling that out. I really appreciate it. And finally, this is from the love survey filled out by Betty. And she writes, I love watching hummingbirds drink nectar from the flowers in my garden. I love a perfectly cooked and seasoned steak. I love that my teenage daughter's best friend calls me mom. I love the first swim of the summer. I love a hot tub. (laughs) I love a hot tub on a crisp, cool night. I love when my partner is relaxing on the couch and his shirt isn't quite pulled down all the way and a bit of his belly is hanging out. I love when the whole family sits on the floor playing with our silly cats and laughing until we cry. And I love Fridays when this podcast is released and I can indulge in listening to the interviews and inner thoughts of so many souls around the world. You are not alone. Oh, thank you for that. Those are beautiful, especially the one about me. I mean, isn't it all about me? we're going to get right down to it. And if it's not, can we make it? Well, I hope you guys uh, enjoyed this episode. And if you're out there and you're feeling stuck or you're feeling alone or you're feeling helpless, I hope this last uh, 70 plus 80 minutes, I don't know how many, how long it's been, 78 minutes. I hope that uh, you feel a little less alone and maybe you're just one step closer to opening up or asking for help or Just telling your brain to fuck off for five minutes so you can chill. (laughs) And uh, just never forget, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.